My heart is to go through this chapter in, I think, three bite-sized pieces. And the reason is there is something so beautiful and so profound that it bears slowing down to make sure we get. And um, this is one of those chapters, and maybe it's just the sentiment of knowing that we'll be departing from the book of Acts that's now seem very much, again, like a good old friend as we've been able to spend so much time with it. Nonetheless, let's take a look at chapter 27, if you would, please. And again, my goal this evening is just to cover the first 14 verses, uh, hinging onto the end of that. So read along with me, if you would, please. And when it was decided that we should set sail or sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship for Andromitium, we put to sea, meaning to sail the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And so the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There was a centurion, I'm sorry, there, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly for many days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near the city of Lesea. Now when much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means we could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they'd obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind called, arose called Eurocliden. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, you know what situations we're in even at this moment. You know, which tempestuous headwinds we find ourselves in at this very moment. You know which tempestuous headwinds we find ourselves battling with or about to face. And Lord, as much as we would love to think that all of them are avoidable, we're aware of the fact, Lord, that there are just some things you've ordained for our life for, to make us better. Now certainly, Lord, not everything we do, Lord, that seems rough in our life is something that um, is you just punishing us. And I thank you for that. Though I've certainly given you enough reason for that alone. 
God, beyond all of that, you've done something kind is to put us in tough places to chisel off, Lord, those things that don't belong to our faith, to purify us, Lord, to prepare us. And so, God, I just pray that you would cause your scripture now to be very pertinent to us. Lord, that you would do more than um, allow us just to simply gain information so that somehow we better feel like we could understand the text, but rather, God, that we would see how something that took place 3,000 miles away and 2,000 years ago could be just as real and pertinent today as it's ever been. So God, reach us now, I pray. Let there be no obstacle, no hurdle, no valley, no hill. But Lord, even as John the Baptist had challenged his own to prepare a straight way for the Lord. So God, we pray that now, that our hearts would be straight way for you. There'll be nothing interfering. God, do your work now. So Lord, right now, Pour upon me your Holy Spirit that in and of myself you would do, God, what I cannot do humanly. That you would speak so perfectly and profoundly to each of us that you could be the only one that could get the credit for it. So we commit this time every second to you. Be glorified in it, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Mm, I like that. Hey, so just like any other night or day, don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Take this beautiful book that's in front of you and use it to test all things. Now, having said that, this text could not be more pertinent to that statement. And the reason being that we're going to be looking today, and by the way, Charlene, if you would, would you put up that map? And if you had all three choices, I'll take number two. We are now... And roughly 5960 A.D. And as we're roughly in 5960 A.D., and if Paul had really given his life to Christ, as we would assume in roughly 34, that means Paul's been a Christian for about a quarter of a century. And that quarter of a century, Paul still has much to write. God still has much ministry for a man who, by the way, unaware, I'm sure at least at this point it appears, is if within seven years he will face his end, at least on earth, as we know it. Awaiting him is that. God tells us, by the way, he makes clear that he's numbered our breaths. He knows every one of them. There's not a breath you're going to take he's unaware of. There's not a hair on your head or will be or used to be that he isn't familiar with. Not a freckle, not an atom, not a molecule. He knows them all. That's good news as long as you're not trying to run from him. In those 25 years, Paul has seen his ministry blossom, change, evolve, shape. It's been beautiful to watch the ministry of a man who learned how to argue before he was saved and tried to take that over the cross. Learn how to debate before he was saved. Tried to take that over the cross. But ultimately will write to the Romans that he's on his route to now. The gospel, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God to salvation. The Jews first and then the Gentiles. For in it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then that righteousness has been revealed from faith to faith. Now Paul will ultimately conclude somewhere in all of this that all the debating in the world, all of the apologetics and ability to argue will mean little to nothing compared to the endless eternal power of God's word in his gospel, which in its simplest form is most powerful. The beauty is it puts our trust not in our abilities 
or inabilities, therefore, feeling inept, but rather in God's eternal ability to do what He can do that we can't, even through us. And if I could just remind you, God never called you to be the craftsman. He called you to be the tool. And the good news in that is, all the tool has to be is obedient to the Master's hand. It's He who does the work. And that's so relieving, so freeing. In our text now, Paul had been warned all the way back four chapters before this that in him, when he, on his way, by the way, uh, through Europe at the time, Macedonia, and then making his way through areas that I will show you here. He was in Greece. That's this area here. And then making his way around, trying to make his way through here by ship, but will not do that. And the reason is, is that people are waiting to kill him actually at Piraeus, the uh, port in Athens. So he has to make his way around by landmass up to Philippi and then work his way around this way. And, and all of that, by the way, he says in at least 17 cities, because he'll visit, he says in every city and every place that he stops, the Holy Spirit tells him very clearly chains and imprisonment await him. But he says, what does it matter to me? I don't consider my life dear anyways. And he says, I am ready. Not just I'm thinking about or I'm mentally prepared, but I am ready to not only be arrested or beaten in the name of Jesus Christ, but also to die for him. And Paul, when he writes to the Philippians later in his imprisonment, which, by the way, we're only a year from at this point, when he's back and he writes to these people here, a predominantly feminine church, by the way, started by a group of gals praying by a riverside. He'll tell them to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he says, I'm kind of hard-pressed. I mean, there's a part of me that just can't wait to get home. Because when I get home, I know that I'll see the Lord. I'll drop this body. All the frailty will be left behind. But on the other side of it, if I'm going to be alive, there's more work to be done that God knows. Because again, He knows my breath. And can I just dare say, you'll never honestly be able to say to die as gain if you don't first reconcile to live as Christ. Now, Paul had, and that seems pretty clear. So Paul makes his way to Jerusalem. As he makes his way to Jerusalem for the feast, he gets beat within inches of his life. He's rescued by the Roman commander, Lysias, and uh, Claudius Lysias, and then from there taken to the Antonio Fortress to be saved, to be rescued. Paul, in route, turns to the Roman commander and says, do you mind if I speak to the people for a moment? For which then he says, aren't you the Egyptian fella? Which is a strange thing to say for a guy that couldn't be more Jewish than Paul. But nonetheless... He says to him, all right, give, go ahead, give it a shot. Paul then turns, raises his hand, which would be traditional way for a Jewish man to quiet a crowd, and then speaks in beautiful Hebrew. And as he speaks in beautiful Hebrew, quiets the crowd and speaks about this Jesus who died for them and rose again, for which they sit quietly through, even declaring Jesus Lord. But the moment that Paul makes, maintains that Jesus loves us who are not Jewish, or fully so, Having said that, the people go mental and they just seek to tear him apart for which then Paul has to be rescued. And now Paul's in a very weird place. And that, the reason I say that is, is that it, that was, by the way, over two years ago according to our text. 
The reason he's in a weird place is that the Romans can't release him because they cannot release a Roman citizen to open peril, to clear peril, and that they know they would do if they let Paul loose. On the other side of it, they actually don't know what to do with him because they can't keep him in prison. And the reason is, is that Roman prisons were a small period holding cell until you either publicly humiliated a person or you did the most common way that the, the Romans deterred their crime. See, the easiest way to keep you from repeating a crime is to kill you. Now, that will do it, by the way. Unless your crime is stinking, it's a pretty good possibility you'll never steal again once you're dead. And so with that in mind, the Romans were quick to make an example out of people. And by the, by the time that we're looking at here, the historians will tell us that the, the streets were littered with thousands of crosses, primarily of Jewish people, but all considered threats to the Roman Empire that they mercilessly killed to be an example, to make sure you know if you mess with Rome, this is what you're going to get. So they, they really can't kill, Rome, kill Paul because they don't have a charge against him. They, but they don't keep a guy in prison for any lengthy period of time. So this guy's really kind of the exception to every rule. He's a Roman citizen, so they can't just let him loose and, because they know that would kill him. But they can't keep him, really, so they don't really know what to do. Paul ultimately appeals to Caesar, and so with that in mind now, Paul has appealed to the highest court at this point now, that's Caesar Nero, who has gone lunatic, as we're aware of. And, and, and so Paul is on his way. By the way, it's clear we have a couple other traveling companions with Paul in this period of time. One, as we see here, is a man named Aristarchus, who, by the way, happens to be from Thessalonica. And the other one, notice in verse 1 it says, and when it was decided, that we should sail, which tells me that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, is currently with Paul while all of this is taking place. Now, walk with me in this text, by the way. And if you keep up the map, if you would, thank you, Charlene. And if you want to, try to see if you can follow it around. Now, ultimately, we start again down in Caesarea. That, by the way, again, is the political capital of Rome. That's where Paul had been kept for two years. He's seen, by the way, the change of empires, well, I should say at least the change of governors of uh, of Roman governors at this point in Judea. So with that, we go from Caesarea and we're going to move up to the biggest and nicest port, natural port in all of this eastern coast here, and that's the area of Sidon here. There's one down here in Ashkelon Ashdod as well, and of course Herod's one there that he had built that was artificial in Caesarea Maritima, which is where he's at. So they're going to go up this way. Now this particular trip, by the way, that Paul was supposed to take initially on a good day, by the way, could just go straight from here, if this makes sense, just straight over to Rome. These things are obviously for decoration. They're not in the water. So Paul could actually go, in theory, just straight across and work his way up then around from Sicily up his way to Rome. But that isn't the way he's going to take. His trip is going to double. He's going to go over 3,000 kilometers before he's done. And I want to remind you, these are guys now that are, in essence, either awaiting execution or awaiting some form of amnesty granted by Nero. So in chapter 7, 27, verse 1, notice what it says. When it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners, one named to one named Julius. By the way, for what it's worth, Julius means soft-haired. Now, I don't necessarily get that image when I think of a Roman commander that, wow, that guy's got really soft hair. I mean, I don't know, I don't know, maybe the helmet treatment of wearing that helmet all the time. I don't know, all the blood that gets on it or whatever. But nonetheless, it's important to note that, that this particular individual is responsible for not only Paul, but a group of people. We will learn by the end of the chapter there'll be 276 prisoners. And, and that, by the way, kind of bears a, a note right from the beginning because this particular Roman guard is going to be responsible to get 276 people that may be a threat to Rome to Rome. Now, 
understand that losing one of them was enough for this centurion to lose his life. So you'd be pretty careful not to lose any of these guys. And you didn't die. I mean, if you were going to be, if you were going to let a prisoner loose, needless to say, they were going to make an example of you, which means it was a slow, torturous death. Nothing that anyone would volunteer for in their right mind. Now, it was decided we should set sail. They delivered Paul and some others then to this this particular centurion named Julius. We'll learn that he's actually overseas. A centurion's a hundred people. Above that would be six centurions. That's called a cohort. That's 600. And then from there, we move to things like a millennia and then to a legion, which would be as many as 6,000 soldiers. This, the, Rome was extremely organized when it came to their military might. From all of the time to from about 100 BC, where you're looking at a guy named Marius, who really was extremely gifted at putting these guys in a very orderly fashion. Now, now follow me in this. A little bit of background will be helpful here. First of all, in regards to centurions, it is really important to note that no soldier became a centurion simply because he was good at killing people. The Romans were very careful not to just, just to put a good soldier in as a leader, but to be a leader, you had to be a person of integrity because the Romans really wanted to make sure that you could be someone they trusted. Interesting, every time we see the term centurion in Scripture, it is always in a positive light. You never once see a negative light shown on a person called a centurion in all of Scripture. In, Mark, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 8, if you remember, Jesus is in the middle of his ministry at this point, and a centurion comes and says, please come to my house, or please come and heal this, and he comes and pleads for a servant of his. Now, to most people, a slave wasn't even considered, they were considered less than the majority of your property. But this particular individual is pleading for a servant. To the point when Jesus says he would come, he would say, I'm not even worthy that you should be in my house. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. He says, I understand authority. I have the authority I have because of the submission I have to a higher authority. And I recognize that you submitted to the Father and your authority have the authority to heal anyone from just right where you're at. So go ahead and just say it. That's enough for me. It's interesting. Jesus will read, doesn't marvel at many things, but he marvels at the lack of a Jewish person's faith or a group of people of their faith. And he marvels over, an un, over a Gentile's faith. In chapter 27, it is a centurion that pierces Jesus' side and says, truly, this was the Son of God. In Mark 15, it was a centurion that granted that dead body, Jesus' dead body, to Joseph of Arimathea. Shows him kindness to do so. In Acts chapter 10, perhaps the one we may be most familiar because it's closest to our text, that's Cornelius, if you remember, who invites all of his family and such over because God tells him, hey, I'm going to send a guy to you. Be ready to listen to him. And I would imagine what great humor it would be for God to send Peter. Now, all of that to say, when you think of this guy, he's going to show Paul a great deal of kindness. He's going to let his friends visit him. He's going to do a couple things to save Paul's life, in essence. He's pretty serious about this. Now, in our text here, we have this man named Julius. Now, as a centurion, you need to know, as a Roman soldier, every Roman soldier, which, by the way, was a position, was a position of, of um, actually, of great standard. It was a position of, 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 uh, of appraisal to many people. He was granted three liberties. One of those three liberties is he was always granted the right of quarter. And what that meant is that any given time, he could just demand to stay at your house. And if you were not a Roman citizen, you had no right to stop him. So no matter where he was, he was, decided, he was, he was given the right of quarter. Second is he was given the right of 
of passage. In other words, he was given the right of carriage. If you were going somewhere, he could commandeer your vehicle at any given time, especially at this, by the time you become a centurion or higher. He could just demand. He could commandeer a ship. He could commandeer a chariot. He had the right to do that, unless it was somebody of a higher authority than himself. And he had the right to demand that you carry. Those were the three things. So it was quarter, carriage, and carry. Now, what that meant is a Roman, by the way, just so you know, his armor alone weighed about 75 pounds. Now, if you think of someone like Bruno, that's probably more than half of what Bruno weighs. Bruno, by the way, was the average size of a Roman centurion, by the way. Now, the reason I say that is, is that which one of you wants to carry half your body weight in metal all the time? So if you walked by somebody who wasn't a Roman citizen, you could demand them to carry your gear for one Roman mile which is very close, by the way, to an American mile and even to the um, European mile as well. Now, for what it's worth, Jesus will use that when he tells us that if somebody demands that you go one mile with them, go with them too. Now understand, the context of that, under, the, under the, our understanding of who would demand us to go a mile, is not like you've got a buddy and they call you because they need a ride and you're going to pick them up and you're going to go an extra mile in your vehicle, but you like the person anyways. This is the bully who shoves his sweat socks in your face and then demands you to carry his stuff. That's what a Roman was viewed at as, in regards to the Jewish people. And so you get the idea that this was the guy you wouldn't want anything to do with except to dump him in a ditch somewhere. And Jesus is like, no, take that guy and carry his stuff a mile. And then and because he could command that of you and then carry in an extra mile. Now, what happens in that second mile? That's the particular mile when you actually get to talk. The first mile is what is expected of you. So the tax man comes to your house. It's the person who just wrote a ticket to you because you parked in that place and it's two minutes past your time. And needless to say, you're not happy about it. And all of a sudden, he hurts himself. And you think, serve you right, chipping on the curb, writing me a ticket. And he'd say, well, you know what? I could really use some help to get someplace. And I could really, and you actually open your car door, give him a ride back to the office so he could get tended to. Now, I guarantee you, it would take a Christian to do something like that. But at a moment like that, when that happens, the person starts to say, well, why are are you doing this? Now, if you offered a guy a ride after we wrote you a ticket, he might be reluctant because he might think you're just going to go dump him in a ditch somewhere. But there is something about going that extra mile from which we get that term to become some of the most beautiful ministry opportunities. Now, back when I lived in California, some of you had heard I had bought a Jeep. Now, understand, I've never been kind of gaga over cars. I'm not one of those persons that a car drives by. I'm like, oh, that's a 1960 blah, blah, blah with this kind of traction. This kind of, maybe you're that kind of person. I've never been that way. Maybe because I grew up too poor to really admire anything like that. But when Jeeps came out and they had this four-door Jeep, you know, it kind of looks manly and you could pull someone out of a ditch. I thought, that's a cool thing. Living by the beach, it was it. And I loved picking up hitchhikers. Within my first two weeks, I had put over a 1,000 miles on the vehicle. I just drove everywhere I could. So it really was no sacrifice for me when I saw a hitchhiker. When I saw a guy with his thumb out. In America, by the way, people who just stick their, stand on the side of the road with their thumb out. And what that's saying is, could you give me a ride? I'm a total stranger. Now, it doesn't matter how strange they are. I was always stranger as a Christian. They could say, I believe I'm from Venus and I could blow snakes out of my nose. And I'd say, I love Jesus. And they're like, ah! I was weirder to them than they were to me. But there was something about the fact they're like, oh, what are you? Oh, you got to be someplace. You got to be 40 miles away. That's sure it would be my pleasure. Hop on in. 
But see, I'm not patting myself on the back for that because I'll be honest with you. I stayed in the car. I didn't push the car to him. I stayed in the car. I didn't even pull right next to him because I slowed down rightly. And as I did, I waited for him to catch up with the vehicle. I didn't even open the door. I just let him in. That is nothing compared to carrying some guy's gear for a mile and then carrying it a second mile. And the reason I got, again, the reason of all of that is, is that Jesus understands, we understood the idea we had no interest in serving a guy like this. But this guy could demand at any given time that we carry his stuff for a mile. And then just about that point when you're about three quarters of a mile, he's looking around to see who's going to be next, right? He's looking to see who the next person is that's going to carry him a mile. And you're like, hey, don't even worry about it. I'll walk. Down. How far are you going anyways? I think I can carry this another mile. Here now, that's, he exercises that right because he actually commandeers two ships in this particular text. It says it was decided that we should sail to Italy. We delivered Paul, he delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, the centurion of the Augustan regiment. Augustan, of course, is one of the names of Caesar. He, more than likely, he was a bodyguard. So entering a ship of Anometrium. Now, if for what it's worth, this is an interesting word because it means I shall abide in death. Now, I don't know about you, but it's kind of like today, if you want to go on a cruise and the ship's called the Titanic, you might not really want to sail on it. Um, this is when, you know, I shall abide in death. That's the ship of, of what Andrometrium means. We put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of, of Asia. Now, Asia, by the way, is the southern coast of Turkey. So we, well, our ultimate intent is to sort of sail around this way. This is the Isle of Cyprus. And ultimately, our hope is to do this. And the reason is now it's getting late in the, and we'll actually get a timestamp here in a moment. So what's happening is we're hoping to do this because the winds traditionally are blowing in this direction. So this is kind of a good idea because obviously we're blocked by a bit of the land. That's a great idea when you're sailing. Now, let me ask you this. Just out of general, uh, general survey here, how many of you have ever really been out to open sea? Let me see by a show of hands. Okay. That's, um, okay, I expected Bjorn. If I had said how many of you have jumped out of a plane or how many of you have eaten a bug, I, Bjorn would be what I expect. Okay, so now, now with that, understand it says here, so we're, we're not really genuine, I mean, we're, we're big enough to be an open sea, but it's not going to be the open sea like we're going to see when we actually get beyond the Isle of Crete, which is where really things hit. And it says here that we, set, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, and we could build on that, but let's move on. Um, the next day, we landed in Sidon. Can you, can you see where Sidon is again? Sidon is right here. We're still traveling up the coast where Israel is. We treated, and it says, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. Now, if you're going to execute a guy in a week, as traditionally you would with the money of the Roman prisons, you don't give him a bath, you don't give him tremendous hygiene. So I imagine if... Uh, I've been in jail for two years. One of the first things I would want is a bath and a good long one. Nonetheless, his friends were allowed to come and receive care. I give him care. Verse 4. When we put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus. You can see that behind me. Because the winds were contrary, which is traditional. They go from the northwest traditionally by the fall. When we had sailed over the sea, which is off Clid, if you can see those places, Cilicia, which, by the way, is where Paul is from, for what it's worth, Paul is traditionally from this area. That's Tarshish, Saul of Tarshish. So when we had sailed past this area and this area, which is what it says here, uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. Now, it's important to note that actually, now how many of you are familiar with Myra? I mean, any of you kind of go, oh yeah, 
that place. What a sweet place that is. I mean, most of us don't know these places. And to be honest, without a map, we probably would be more tempted to read it quickly. But I want, you to, I want to remind you here, these people aren't land lover. I'm sorry, these people aren't sailors. They're land lovers. These are people that are known as being enemies or potential enemies to the state. This is not the princess cruise lines here. This isn't the Norwegian princess. This here is just any kind of ship you can find. Now, what kind of ships land in this place? And that gives us a little bit of a clue. Not only this one, but, but also the one we're going to find that they're going to take from here. We land in this place because this is, in essence, the bread carriage for the rest of Turkey and, by the way, the portal then for all of the landmass here. And so what happens is Egypt, as you're probably aware of, is a huge bread basket. A lot of grain is grown there. And with that, a lot of it gets sent up. It gets gathered here and then sent over and then traded along the silk trade route, which is up here. And with that then, it also bounces off of here and whatever it doesn't, whatever it trades off, whatever um, is left, and then it heads over and gives to Rome. So understand, what you've got then is you've got a really, really big cargo ship. That's what you have. There's no beds on a cargo ship. It's a cargo ship. Beds take up space where you could get cargo. And a guy that moves cargo wants to move as much of it as possible because the more cargo he moves, the more money he makes. And the reason I say that is I want to remind you, it wasn't like Julius showed up with his buddy Paul and the two of them were looking for an adventure. Bjorn was with them. They haven't really been this route. Let's go check this out. Another thing to stamp on my passport. This is a Roman centurion with 276 prisoners. So understand, it isn't like you can just take over any ship. You need one where you can cram 276 guys. Now look at If they died en route, you were okay. As long as you delivered the body. But if you didn't deliver the body, you'd be in trouble as the commander. It would be better for them to die than for you to lose a guy. So you need a ship big enough to be able to put 276 guys, regardless of whether they live through it or not. And if you'll pardon me for saying, in some senses, these kind of things are often mentioned a lot like what we might think of as a slave ship in regards to people just piled on top of people on top of people. That's kind of the idea here. Now, for what it's worth, remember, Paul had been beaten badly two months ago. Now the trip's going to be a bit treacherous. We had already gone a couple, we'd gone 67 miles north, roughly 100 kilometers north from Caesarea to Sidon. So just to give you a reference, this is 100 kilometers. So if this is 100 kilometers, you want to start chasing how much we're doing here? So we land now in this place, and the particular place where we land is a place where everyone's dropping off grain, picking up grain, ready to move it. That's where we're at. And I remind you, one of the places where the grain comes from is Egypt, one of the most important ports, or one of the, sorry, one of the most major cities in all of Egypt is Alexandria. Now, the reason is it is considered the intellectual capital at this point of the world. If you came from Alexandria, it would be like you came from Oxford or Cambridge and you sort of popped around California. That's kind of the idea. They would assume you were bright. Even if you were just born and raised there and you still needed Velcro for your shoes, they would expect you to be brilliant. And to be from Alexandria was sort of kind of a hint of that. I mean, just being saying you were from there gave you some form of street cred. And so you have a ship that's arrived from Alexandria, but what is it doing there? Dropping off grain. So we have a really big grain ship from which these guys are going to get loaded onto. Because, again, in the eyes of the Roman government, they're just cargo that needs to get from one place or another. So, it says then, verse 6, the, from there, the centurion found the Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. And when we had sailed slowly for many days and arrived with difficulty off Canidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone, 
and passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, a city near the city of Lycia. Now, does anyone think, if, you're gonna, if you've been on rough seas, I don't know how many of you have ever been in the open seas when it's quite windy, but the moment that it gets quite windy, what does that do to the water? It makes it extremely choppy, which means that the, that means the entire ship goes... Now, I remind you, we are traveling... Now, now put this together. We're traveling this direction. You got that? As we're traveling this direction, the wind's blowing this direction. So which way are the waves coming? They're coming this direction. So what that means is, look around you. One great thing about old churches is they could look like boats. Now, maybe I'm just a kid with a vivid imagination, but could you imagine a room like this? This is a big boat. And if it were the case, you've been here, and all of a sudden you've got... And things are sliding to one side. Things are sliding to the next. And you have 276 people who are not known for being sailors. So you know what that means, right? That means you have 276 barfing people on a ship full of grain, hoping not to get crushed by very large containers of wheat, barley, and flax. So understand, this. how long, is, how long do you want to be on a ship like that? Even if you're the one with the toughest stomach, how many people need to throw up near you before you're ready? And I'm not trying to be gross or crude. I just want to put a little life into this. Understand, this is not a pleasure cruise. When God said, now I remind you, Jesus had told Paul two years before this, he says, don't worry, I'm going to get you to Rome. Let's be honest, I love God's promises. It's the when and the how that bother me sometimes. Because I love what he wants to do. I'm just not often fond of how he gets me there. But he knows. He knows perfectly that the guy, for instance, if you're single and God's got in your life marriage planned for you. Now, I'm not looking at anyone. I don't, um, this is not a prophecy, but I can guarantee you, if that's where you're at, if you're single and God has kept you single for a reason, one of the things is he's preparing you for marriage if he's going to have you married. And if he's going to have you married, I guarantee you the route to your marriage is one where he's going to chisel off parts of you you may even like. And if the Lord were to sit down and go, don't worry, honey, you're going to be married in three years, you'd say, awesome, three, wait a minute, three years? Right? I thought you said three months. And, and, and then he might start with that. But then sooner or later you go, well, what's in, but the route to get there is one because he doesn't want you to ruin the guy you're going to marry or the gal you're going to marry. So he would really like to change you in that period of time. I've got a great ministry for you. I have this great blessing. I have these wonderful plans. I want to use you to change the world. And you say, yes. And God goes, now, do you want me to tell you the route or would you rather just cling to me? He's like, I better not tell you the route. You better just wait. And you know what happens? Sometimes, listen to me, walk with me on this. Sometimes he will wait a long time on the promise so that you're actually okay with the route a little bit or a whole lot more than you would have been if he had just started you on that journey at the beginning of it. And I'll, sh- I'll share one of those areas that I'm confident in, and that's the area of pregnancy. Now, we're all aware of the fact I will never be pregnant nor ever give birth. We're all aware of that. But I've learned this, that when gals get pregnant, as my wife had been, when a gal gets pregnant, there is that fear that can grip you that you know, especially with your first child, I am going to be delivering a very large thing through parts of me that aren't, don't seem necessarily, if you'll pardon me, necessarily built for that initially. And, and there's that fear and there's all of that. But what happens is in nine months, this baby makes a person so 
miserable that they're going to be like, okay, fine, just do this. But if the Lord were going to just, and everything was going to happen in the day, you really wouldn't have that time for it. Does that sort of make sense? And, in the, in, in, and if, pardon me if that sort of seems a little off color. All I really mean by that is, is that when the Lord has a plan for you, sometimes he's going to hold out on the route because, to be honest, by the time you wait a little longer, you're willing to drop your standard of what route God has to take to get you there. But he plays for keeps. So the route he's going to give you doesn't necessarily and normally won't be the one you'll choose but the results he gets are going to be permanent versus the quick route you might take that'll be temporary. We're so quick to kick up dust, but God's good to move mountains. Now, now follow me on that. So here, and the reason I say that is, is that Paul's waited two years so that he could take this gl- glorious little barf bucket to, um, to Rome. And this one he's not going to take. Now, just to add to this fun, according to 2 Corinthians, by the way, for what it's worth, when he gives his testimony in chapter 11, verse 25, Paul makes clear he's already been in three shipwrecks, which we don't have any record of, by the way, in Scripture. So I start to think, wow, who wants this guy on board? I don't know how many ships he's been on, but three of them have already been destroyed. You ever meet a guy and it's like, you know, hey, let me give you a ride. And they're like, you know, I just want you to know this is my 14th accident. And you're like, you're 20. We, there was a guy that was on our way to our house once. We used to have this thing called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner where we would take college students and we'd um, invite them over. And, you know, it, was, it was sort of a lottery type thing and they would come over and then discover they were at the, the house of their pastor. And, and in that, this particular young man came over and he's like, man, I just, just sorry I was late. I was in an accident. I, I think he was probably 19 years old. And he's like, this was my 27th accident. I says, can I just be honest with you? After the fifth accident, I wouldn't give you a bicycle. Anyways, so with all of that said, Paul's already been in three shipwrecks. I kind of knows the, the rules of this, I guess, to some degree, if you could. He spent a day and a night in sea. At this point, we land in a place called Fair Havens. And I don't know about you, but with us rough going back and forth, a Fair Haven sounds like a really wonderful place to spend your winter at. Sounds like a retirement community. But with that, it's really a small place, kind of in the middle of nowhere, that has to be identified by a city that it's relatively near. That tells you something. And at this particular point now, we're all trying to get our feet, our land feet back on. And it says in verse 9, when much time had been spent. Now, why do you think a lot of time was spent there? The sailors had it pretty rough. The passengers had it rough. They had to figure out how much of the grain they could clean up and still sell. It says at that point, then, when much time had been spent, sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. Now I have a time stamp. The fast as I would have it, if this is 59 AD, by the way, would put us right now at October, October 5th. So to give you an idea, traditionally, nobody likes to sail past really August um, except your last, sort of you make your last maiden voyage at that point. So, so I mean, we're in August, we've got all of September. We're now at the beginning of October, and that's past. And if you're, man, you're past this point, man, you better be dropping off your cargo and this is it. This is time to winter. And Paul had already talked about that in other times where he had hoped to winter in certain places because, the, you know, the seas become quite treacherous in the winter. And unless you're in Hawaii where you can surf it, and even there it's quite treacherous, this is a time to stay out of the water. And so with this in mind, now Paul's going to stand up and speak. But let 
me remind you, Paul is a, at best a piece of property that, is, that a man is responsible to get from one place to another. And he looks at these men and he says, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end in disaster. Now, there's always somebody like this on this ship. It doesn't matter what it is. Let's be honest. There's always somebody that goes, this ship's probably going to sink. We're never going to make it on time. It's what I'm, and I'm sure, if, oh, it's starting to rain. We're going to slip and die. I mean, there, there can't, and so, but we don't have any record that Paul has a great relationship with a lot of these people, but with the commander he seems to, who's already shown him kindness to let his friends tend to him when he was up in Tyre and Sidon. And so, so with that in mind, though Paul kind of speaks of, now whether he feels he has a right to or not, what he's saying is, look it. You know, notice he doesn't say, God told me this. He doesn't say, I am divinely led. This is prophecy. But he just kind of stands up and says, look it, I I don't think this is a really good time to sail. Now, what if this were God's word? What if he would have spoken and he said, no, thus says the Lord, which he isn't saying here. Though later on in the story, we'll learn that an angel does speak to him and give him some information. What we're going to find is, is that the centurion chooses not to go with his advice. And what's interesting, and this really, to be honest, is the crux of our text, is that he actually allows four other things to sway him in this part of the text. From, by the way, verse 11 through verse 13, what we'll find is, is that we'll find four very basic things that, can I just say, can be tools for, against you as well, when God says something simply and clearly that you can use to cloud up, distract, distort, convolute, and confuse the simple, clear word of God. Can I just simply say to start with, I'm going to come with stuff, and if it sounds offensive, like I would say, in any other case, please don't just believe me. I challenge you again, compare it to this book. Not to anything else, but this book. And if you need the book plus something, then God didn't do his job right, let's be honest. And you're like, well, wait a minute, I don't understand everything. God's like, if you understood everything, your brains would explode out of your head. But he will give you what you need to know right now. And I've learned, as a great carpenter as he is, he always builds his second floor after he builds the first And sometimes the information you're trying to figure out is on a floor that isn't been, the the ones before it haven't been built yet. Now, now with that in mind, follow me on this, okay? So Paul kind of stands up. You ever have, and maybe this is what can happen in your life. There's a moment where you're seeking the Lord on something, and the Lord sends whatever means, it's in his word, it's in prayer, something is impressed upon your heart. Somebody that loves the Lord comes over, and you're going to challenge him with the Lord, and you go, hey, look at Peter, I just need to tell you, I really believe the Lord's telling me, da, 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 da. And Peter goes, and more than likely, if we're really, really honest with ourselves, the first thing we start to ask is, do I inertly disagree with this? Is there a part of this that my flesh doesn't want to do? And let's face it, if the Lord's like, Peter, I want to bless you. I want to send you out to this place and give you a vacation, a holiday. I'm going to give you this beautiful thing. And you're like, wow, yeah, I could submit to that. But the moment God starts saying something that your flesh disagrees with, at that point, you're already going to know there's going to be some battle to be fought. So someone's speaking, and like, you know, Francis, I really want to tell you something. And then Francis is going to listen because he's like, okay, is this something that's going to bless me and edify me and strengthen me and make me feel good about myself in the beginning? Or is this something that I'm going to be naturally opposed to that I have to weigh out a little bit more? That's kind of the idea here. So Paul, what he's saying, by the way, 
is really not going to be popularly treated, if you think about it, from a centurion who is responsible to get 276 prisoners to Rome. That means one of those guys, every day that goes past is another day for a guy that could potentially escape, which again means he could be tortured to death. I would like to get that job done. How about you? So Paul's kind of like, you know what, I really don't, really don't want, I don't think we should sail right now. I mean, we're in a place called Fair Havens. Doesn't that sound like a good idea until the spring when things kind of mellow out? And this is what it says. And, and it says, notice here, and by the way, you can go back to the text now if you want. It says this in verse 11. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And here's our first of them. By the way, all four of them will have the letter E as our first letter, kind of a mnemonic help. And the first is the experts. You know, though the Lord may say something, there's always going to be an expert that's going to stand against it. You know what the most amazing thing to me is? Is that it doesn't matter what a person thinks they're an expert in. Every person somehow feels like they have a right to be an expert in God, even if they've never met him. You'll take a guy with seven letters before his name, Dr. QHPRS, whatever, limited, so forth, right? And then his name, Eugene or whatever. And he might have 75 years of experience in the area of literature. He could probably tell you, you know, what kind of socks Dickens would put, you know, would put on, him, uh, on himself on a rainy day. He could probably tell you how he laced his shoes, whether the bunny went in and around or anyways. He could have probably told you all of that. And he was like, well, let me tell you what. And, and then Dickens in this, and man's with big jaws, and how he uses that metaphor, and all of a sudden. And, and he's, he's such an expert in this area. And he goes, and let me tell you about the Bible. It's full of lies. And blah, blah. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. When did you become an expert in the Bible just because you know, because you know Dickens? And there's some guy that could tell you how something happens with an atom and how they divide and how they start to multiply. And they are pretty good at that stuff because they have a really good experience. And, a lot of, and, they, and they might, we might dare say they're an expert in that area. But then they want to tell you how stupid you are for believing in Jesus because you believe that God created things. And I'm going to, excuse me, you're out of your pay grade now. You are not an expert in that. But it is amazing how much the church has bought into the quote-unquote experts, to the point where they'll have more say than the Word of God. And what we're doing is we're trying to, listen, listen, we're trying to reconcile the Word of God to this quote-unquote expert rather than trying to reconcile, quote-unquote, this expert to the Word of God. And my question to you in regards to, and I'll just go straight for the throat of this because I've never been good at dancing around things like this. Creation versus evolution, that's one of them. If I just read this book, what would I get? Before I talk to some quote-unquote expert, by the way, who most of them haven't even seen half of the stuff that they talk about. Nonetheless, the, the, the beautiful illustrations which have nothing but fiction written all over them. And, and I can tell you that from friends of mine who are scientists who can tell you that half of this is, is completely made up. And I'm not trying to pick on the field. I'll let them do that themselves. But I can tell you, just because a guy says, you're an idiot for believing this, we, you know, smart minds think this way. We're all aware that it takes several billion years or 700 million years. I mean, I think when I went to school, the earth was 70 million years old, and now I think it's 700 million years old. I didn't go to school that long ago. And the only reason I say that is, is that somewhere down the line, we either go, wow, that expert's going to think I'm stupid. But the Bible says that the gospel's foolishness to those who are perishing. 
I would expect the wisdom of God to be treated with contempt by somebody who hates him. The question is, would I come up with that if I just read this book? And the answer is no. He says, there was a day, there was a night, it was a day. I'm like, I couldn't make it any more clear. It's like, and by the way, God said, let there be and there was. The rest of the time he spent enjoying it. So don't tell me, when someone will say, well, I think, well, and you know, here's the real, here's the excuse, right? Well, you know, it says to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, which still doesn't work in the math. But I've never seen anyone go, well, so maybe like that day was like roughly a thousand or a million. What's the difference? It's zeros, right? Anyways, but it's funny because when we look at Jesus' millennial reign, we don't think, well, maybe that's a day because it's a thousand years. Because it says a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. And the whole idea of it is, look, at God is not like going, wow, when is this going to happen? God is not impatient like we are because a day is like a thousand. In other words, it isn't like God saying in God's math a day is like a thousand years. It's like to God, look at God sees everything at one time. He's not intimidated by the time it's going to take for you to get with it. Isn't that good news? Are you really telling me that God made the valley, the sun stands still at the valley of Ajalon? How ridiculous is that? Don't you realize if that happened, gravity would cease to be as we know it and things would fly off there? As if God could stop the planet for a second and go, whoa, whoa, what am I doing? If he created it, if you get past the first verse in scripture, all the rest should be easy, which is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if he created it, he knows how it works. And if he knows how it works, he knows how to muck with it any way he wants to. I mean, God could have turned the whole thing into a bouncing bunny and then into a turtle and then stuck it back as a globe and God could say that was for my entertainment. And to be honest, people say, well, that sounds like a fairy tale. Everything sounds like a fairy tale if you can't prove it. The idea that a crystallite jumped onto the back of another crystallite, got hit by lightning somewhere and then became a life force sounds like a fairy tale to me. And, and, then I'm, and the only reason I say that is, is that I'm not here to tr- pick on that guy if he doesn't know the Lord. I'm here to pick on you if you do. Because we've so suckered into that nonsense and garbage of some guy that calls himself an expert that they're creating the rules to make us look like imbeciles because we're actually trying to say, we're not checking with the Bible and what they say, we're checking with, on them and what the Bible says. And by the time you're done, you've got seminaries that are pumping out atheists. Because it isn't about training men up for ministry anymore. Now it's about trying to make you look smart. So let me ask you something. If the Bible says, this is what I want to do, David, in your life. Andrew, this is what I want to do. Andrew, I want to deliver you completely from that addiction. And Andrew goes, but the experts say, if I'm born with that, I'm going to have it for, I'll always be that addict. But the Bible says, whoever's in Christ is a new creation. And we have something that is just butting heads in conflict. You're going to have to choose one. It just sickens, it literally, literally sickens me how many times we side with something other than God's word. And I don't blame the world for thinking we're nincompoops if we do that. They will respect you more for clinging to what you believe in his word and not bending to it than actually saying you believe in this, but actually following them in the end. That's a jellyfish. And the people are looking for someone with a spine. And so Paul's like, you know, this is, and, and you know, it's, it's going to be like that. Well, let me just check with a few people. And so what happens is, you know, Marcia, let me tell you what the Bible says. They say, you know what? I really think you shouldn't have sex before your marriage. Why? Because the Bible says that. And someone will say, well, you don't understand. The experts say 
that you're going to wind up having sex anyways, unless you're ugly. That's what they say. It's like, but you know what? You prove them wrong is what happens. Because some of y'all out there, if, if I just dare say, you truly tell them that they're wrong. And the end of it all is, just because a person calls himself an expert does not mean they're an expert in the things that are important, if I can just say that. There are people that are experts in medieval science and medieval medicine, but if I tell you what, if I have a stomachache, they're the last person I'm calling. They are an expert, but they, I don't want to be bled. I don't want to have a demon drilled out of my head. I don't want to have somebody actually, you know, try to stick a frog down my throat because that's what they did. Oh, and they might be an expert, but just because you're an expert. And so let me ask, if you want to be an expert, let me ask you, if you really wanted to be an expert in one area, honestly, what would it be? I don't even want it to be the Bible. I want it to be the God of this Bible. The Bible is one of the tools that helps me be that. Because really what I want to know is not his word first, but the Lord first. And the word is such a beautiful way to make that clear. Some people say, I think Jesus was this. I think Jesus was black. I think Jesus was, I tell you what I think Jesus was. He was Jewish. God even gave me his lineage to make that clear. But it really is immaterial because in the end of it, I'll tell you what I think God is. Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. And he could be green glowing with a plate on his head. It really doesn't matter to me. In the end of it all, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief who paid for my sins. Praise God for that. And then in the end of it all, I want to know him. Well, Second, verse 12. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in. The harbor was not suitable to winter in. Let me tell you, first of all, in regards to the first one, here's a verse just so you know, so at least you have one in there. Proverbs 21.30, where it says that there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. That's God's appraisal. So someone says, I'm really, really wise, but I stand against the Lord. God says, that's not wisdom. The second, the harbor was not suitable to winter in. And this is, by the way, one that will actually be subtle, but it works. The enemy uses it, and that is emergency. There's something in the tyranny of the urgent that really can get some of us. Because what happens is we seem to operate from survival when we're really not, even in a position where we're, where we're not even nearing peril. And there, like, for instance, some of you, you ever actually walk to something like you're late even though you don't have a specific time to be there? You've just trained yourself to feel like you're late? Or is that just me? Well, you get to that point where all of a sudden it's like, you know, but we just, we just have to make a decision right now. I have, to have a, I have to have closure. And God's like, no, 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 you really don't. Imagine, well, I know a guy that tried to do that because he actually was waiting for a kid for 25 years. And in the time that he waited, he had a couple really goofy uh, options that he chose. Well, one of them he offered just basically to make his chief slave, his oldest slave, Eliezer, his one. He was like, hey, look at, you know, you said, son, this is close enough. And God's like, no, 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 take me literally. Try it. Well, it doesn't have to make sense. Well, of course not. Why did, I didn't say that it had to make sense. I'm saying take me literally. But people think I'm dumb for that. Look at how old I am. And God's like, I know, isn't it awesome? And he's like, no, it's not awesome. I tell you what, my wife says, well, you know, he said he'd come from you, but didn't say he'd come from me. So why don't you actually have a child with someone else? And in the end, God's like, you know, stop trying to help me out. I know what I'm doing. And you're like, but, but it just seemed like, and then I think about Saul. Those of you who are familiar with him, the predecessor to King David in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, Samuel says to him, well, look at this. The Philistines are going to be in battle against us. So I want you to go to Gilgal and wait for me there. And we're going to do a sacrifice. I'll be there in a week. 
well, I'm going to do a sacrifice and then we'll go and go to battle. Well, Saul kind of gets there and he's kind of rubbing his hands and he's looking around and Samuel's just not showing up. The guy is late. They canceled the northern line. You know how that works. And so with all of that, he's just like, and he kind of hears sounds and it's like, oh, and the people are starting to bail because they're kind of getting scared. And Saul's like, fine, oh, fine, I'll just do the sacrifice myself, which was never his job to do. And somewhere down the line, you get convinced in you that this is the moment it has to happen. Listen, God is never early, but he's never late either. Oh, he's late for your timetable, but he's never late for his. He knows when it gets done right and when it gets done permanently. I have a friend who's super, super gifted. He's one of our pastors back in America, senior pastor of an area north of us. Super handy. He's like MacGyver. He could just take a couple of things and build just about anything with it. And I remember once we had the responsibility of painting something. We had two days to get it done. Now, I have no, I mean, I have no real history on things real handy. I'm the kind of person that, to be honest, power tools are probably not a wise thing to put in my hand uh, unless we're going to try to tear something down. We did a really good job of tearing down walls. But anyways, but, but in this, we had to paint this thing. And he's like, look, we're going to do some scraping. And I'm like, okay. So we started scraping. We scraped. We scraped. We scraped. And I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the fun part. The fun part's with a brush, with a roller. I mean, let's, we're making a difference here, right? Scraping, man. That's just, ah. We scraped for a day and a half. We had two days to have this thing done. And I'm kind of looking at him going, you are aware, right, that this thing needs to be done in two days. And he's, and he's totally unaffected by all of my concerns. Because, again, I'm ignorantly saying this stuff. I don't have any experience in this area. I'm kind of looking at him like maybe some of you would, at least. Come on, work with me here. And I'm kind of like, you know, hey, you know, we do, you know, you start by hinting, right? You do that, you know, well, we have, look at how lovely this paint is. Can't wait to see what it looks like on the walls, right? You start with that, and sooner or later, you just flat out go, are, are we ever going to paint? And finally, the paint goes up like this, but it goes up so well. And the reason is, the preparation was the vast, vast majority of a good paint job. Now, I learned that later. But I wonder how many times in my own life God's prep is so much more of it than the practice. And I'm going, come on, God, where is it going to happen? And God's like, you don't really even see what I'm doing right now because it doesn't look as pretty as the paint job. Does that make sense? But then I get so concerned. Imagine if I just started throwing paint up while this thing's still covered in dust and he's sanding and stuff like that. It would have really looked lousy. And I think a lot of my life reflects that. Every mess that I think that's come out of my life since I've known the Lord has been moments like that where I really haven't displayed faith. And one of the things that displays our faith, if I can be honest, is time. It's one of the things I hate displaying my faith with. I'd like to just make a good decision once and move on, but time is where it really does get rough. So the first is experts. The second is emergency. Are you with me on that? We're halfway through. The third one. Notice it says in verse 12, second part of it, it says, And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest the winter there. The third E is everybody. And you know how many times you've heard this. I wonder how many times you've used it. But everybody likes that song. But everybody's going. But everybody tries it a little bit. It's amazing how many of the everybody is actually often a minority just vocal. We just assume everyone else is part of that everyone. Every teen's having sex. 
Every man's cheating on his wife. Every pastor's a crook. Every church is out after your money. Every Christian is mindless. Every politician's crooked. None of them care about people. Every policeman's out for their own thing. Every doctor's addicted to his drugs. I don't doubt some of those things are true. But not every one of them. And I'm sure of that when it comes to pastors. But it is amazing how the enemy can convince you. Hey, ease up a little bit. Everyone's going to think you're an idiot. Everyone's going to think you're a prude. Everyone's going to think, wow, she's holier than thou. She's judgmental. She's self-righteous because she made a choice to do something right. Doesn't that sound crazy? Even if it sounds crazy, does it sound familiar? Now, Scripture says, by the way, in Romans 3, 4, let God be true, but every man a liar. God did not say, by the way, my Bible has an expiration date, and in about 2,000 years, why don't you guys take a vote and see whether or not these things are still sins or not? The church is trying, is the church is ordaining people, by the way, who have chosen as a lifestyle things that the Bible calls sin. Now, I want to make clear again, I think that the church has been lax for a very long time on a lot of areas. Sexual sin is one of them. And that's not just whether that is a man attracted to a man. That's a man divorcing and running after another girl. That's a woman divorcing and running after another man. The whole thing's been such a mess for so long. The church hasn't stood for proper marriage and now we're trying to take a stand. Well, we better take a stand for it all, biblically or not. But that means that we should be investing in families. That means we should be invest, investing in men to be men, women to be women, men to be to be not just somebody that's a despot or a tyrant, but somebody that leads by example, that follows the Lord. Because to be honest, I don't think a lot of guys even know men like that outside of this. To be honest, in most places, I don't know if they'll know them within many of the churches. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 2, it says, You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. I think it's a great verse. And we live in a place here where crowds gather real quickly to do evil. And just getting caught up in it. You walk in a room, all your friends are doing drugs. When the police arrest her, do you think they're going to actually check with you first? And go, well, you look sober. And the end of it all, choosing a wrong crowd will corrupt good morals. God makes that really clear in the scripture. So we have the experts. We have emergencies. We have everybody. And then we have our final one. Verse 13. When the south wind blew softly. Oh, doesn't it sound like something now that's a commercial? Fair havens, where the south wind blows smoothly. Softly. Supposing that they obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close to Crete. And they have no idea that they are about to basically sail into a hurricane. Have a nice day. The fourth of them is the events. Now, I'll tell you a little story that I know, and we're almost done here, just so you know. When we had the privilege of going to Nigeria and minister there at a crusade, 
some of the most fantastical, wild stories that I won't tell you now for the sake of your time. We were told of a man, and this particular man was, well, he was kind of known for being a bit of a phony. He was big and lambastic. He was cantankerous in his behavior. But he drove the nicest cars, wore the nicest suits, and ministered to some of the poorest people. And during this particular time, he got really tired of hearing it from the one person who told him the most that he was a phony, which happened to be, by the way, his wife. And probably some of you who are married, you know this. God will always use your spouse, or often will use your spouse to tell you the truth, even when you don't want to hear it, especially when you don't want to hear it, but need to hear it. This man, so feeling that he had the bondage of his wife, openly testifies on television that he sought to be free from this marriage because it was a bondage to his ministry. And he said, I kid you not, as he was praying this prayer, a large belch came from him. And he was convinced that was God delivering him from the demon of bondage to his marriage, for which then he promptly went and quickly got him a divorce. And, and as I'm listening to this story, my first thought is, so let me see if I have this right. A man has gas and it's a miracle. I don't know if I get that. Because there are men that I know that if every time they burp, they're casting out a demon, they're casting out a legion one by one. Now again, I don't mean to be crass, but look at what happened. They took some event that, by the way, in my opinion, wasn't even anything out of the ordinary, except maybe it might have been a larger burp than normal. If you've eaten Nigerian food, burping isn't really necessarily that strange. And, and, and in that, he chose to use that. As, now, can you do the same? Pastor Tony, I know he's not a Christian, but he called me. Yeah, but he's not a Christian. I know the Bible says not to be unequally yoked, but he's cute and he called me. Yes, Satan probably would call you too at a moment like this if you pick up the phone. Do you think I should go out with him? What does Scripture say? Well, Scripture says I shouldn't, but what do you think? What difference does it make what I think if that's what Scripture says? <coughs> See what I'm saying? Well, you know, I have these friends and, 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 I, just, and I said, God, if you really want, I'm going to fleece you. If you really want for me to go to that party where everyone's going to get wasted... Just have them call me. And after about an hour of nobody calling, you ever do this? This is, you know, not that any of you would ever do this. You text someone and go, it's okay to call me. I'm home. Right? Anything, anything at all. Anything at all. And then, you know, okay, and then you text another person. I'm home now. Near my phone. And you're just waiting. And then they call and you're like, ah, see, God did it. He validated. But God, you know, you know that God had already told you that was a sin. Now, I don't endorse movies, but let me, you know, I'm not telling you you can or can't go, but that's, that's a matter of your own conviction. But I tell you, there was a movie I saw, and it's been so long now that, that I don't even remember whether it was the kind of movie I could recommend or not, even if you did see it. But, but this particular movie had Steve Martin in it that tells you how old it is. And in, in this particular movie, he was kind of a ditzy guy, but he was sort of, but he was a surgeon, and he was fairly wealthy, and he was, his wife had passed away. And this gal had now kind of come in and she was a gold digger and she was going to take him for all that he was worth. And that was her only reason for being with him. 
And during this, the one scene that just so sticks in my mind is this man who kind of doesn't have it all together other than apparently where he has this money. And he, he kind of walks over to this, thir- this mantle of this fireplace and there's this big picture of his deceased wife. And he stands there and he says, whatever her name is, Eleanor, if there is any reason at all why I shouldn't marry so-and-so, just give me a sign. And at that particular moment, all of a sudden, this wind picks up, the house starts to shake, papers are smacking him in the face, There's the painting is spinning around, and you're going, no, no! I mean, he's getting pummeled by all of this, and he's standing there un, un, unmoved. No! And, he's like, and after like four minutes of this, everything settles back down again. You know, his hair now is completely disheveled, stuff is still on his face, and he looks and he goes, any sign at all? You just let me know. Meanwhile, I'm going to take your picture and put it in the closet. And, and I wonder how many times God does that. The, the, not our part, our part, where we're asking God. And, and, and you know what? Here's the crazy thing. When someone says, you realize it only says that 14 times in Scripture. Excuse me, how many times do you need to be told? One should be enough. And you're like, well, I can't seem to find any other Scripture other than this one about that. Well, maybe God just thought that was so simple, that was enough. I mean, how many times does God tell you you probably shouldn't need a bat? But you wouldn't need a bat normally, unless you're in Russia and they tell you it's chicken. But, um, and, and listen, please, please hear me. That there are times where the Lord has something really, really specific for you. I mean, he really says, look at I have something so beautiful for you. But man, you are so busy trying to wait for some event to validate it, but I already told you you should do it. So here's my question to you as we get ready to to pray. Would the Lord be more disappointed if you thought that it could be the Lord and you stepped out and did it? Or you thought it could be the Lord and you chose not to just in case? Which one do you think would bless the Lord the more? Which one do you think would disappoint him more? We've convinced ourselves, if I do nothing really well, God will applaud me for it. And God's like, congratulations, you did nothing really well. And that's what we get. But my Lord loves you so much and he loves me so much that the experts of the day being Rome, he chose to be beat to death by them. That tells me something. And I start to look at this and I think, man, Lord, the emergency was saving me and he already knew exactly how to do that so he didn't have to. I mean, when people were coming to betray him, when people were picking up stones to stone him and it was like it wasn't his time, he knew that his life was in the Father's hands so he didn't have to act from a state of trying to preserve his own life. That was the Father's job. He was going to give it up anyways. Everybody, they're the ones who yelled in the multitude, crucify him, and yet he died for him anyways, including you including me. And every event that could have tried to keep him from it, including the enemy saying, why don't you just bow down? I'll give it to you right now. Temporarily, Jesus was playing for keeps and he knew the only way to do that was to die. And he died for your sins and for mine and then rose again so that you could be his forever. Not for a date, not for a breath, not for a moment, but for eternity. And the only way that happened was a long road that he took of complete obedience. Have you accepted that gift of Jesus Christ? Because if he's done all of that, now all he asks is for you to surrender. He did the hard part. 
And in surrender, he promises to make you a brand new creation. But if you have said yes to him, welcome to the wonderful adventure that starts now. And that adventure is you're going to have things that are going to stand against you. And people are going to say, you know, people that love you and mean well are going to say, you did what? You became a what? Born again? What? What's wrong with you? And you're saying, no, no, no. Actually, for the first time in my life, nothing's wrong with me. Except maybe you at this moment. But everyone else is going to disagree. Well, too bad. Wait a minute, what about these emergencies in my life? I can't give my life to Jesus today. Do you realize what other things are going on in my life that seem so urgent? God's like, because those other things are urgent, you need to give your life to me right now. And with every event around you that'll stand and challenge you, I'm here to tell you, my Lord knows what he's doing. And he plays for keeps, and he always does it right the first time. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. I thank you so much, Lord, for what we can learn in it. And these entities that could be so at enmity, Lord, with your particular clear teaching, your clear word. And God, I just want to stand in the gap for my brothers and sisters. And even if there ever be a time in myself to ask your forgiveness for where somehow we've chosen to side with something against you, simply, Lord, because it seemed to have more momentum or PR or advertising, Lord, or, or whatever, Lord because it had a prettier pie graph because somebody drew a, a chart and called themselves an expert because everybody else seemed to be doing it. And Lord, thank you for making so clear Hollywood does not dictate reality. Thank you for making so clear, Lord, that, that every human being does have the same need and that need is to be delivered from the penalty of their sin. And because that's universal, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for that universal need so he could die permanently from, to pay for all of those things, but then raise again three days later. Though his death was temporary, his payment was permanent. And I thank you, Lord, that your promises are in you, in you, yes and amen. And so I pray right now for every brother in this room, every sister in this room, God, purify our faith. Lord, that we would really genuinely filter everything through your word. And for that to happen, we need to be clear on your word. That we would be in your word, eating your word, feasting on your word, enjoying your word. And Lord, when there are times where you say, you know what, you really shouldn't go out and do this. You really shouldn't go out and do this or that thing and stay away from this thing or that person or that relationship or whatever it is. God, that we would obey. We would say, but God... This has to happen right now. As if we have to inform you of something, Lord, that really, in all honesty, should never have to be the case. So, Lord, I just pray right now for, for every person here, myself included, God, that you would purify our faith, that you would get us back to where just what your word says is just simply truth because you made it that way, simple and clear for a reason. And so, God, please don't let us complicate what you made simple. And in that, Lord, I just pray we could fall in love with you the way you intend, even as you are with us. If there be any or many who have not said yes to this king, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree at the end, I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let those words be mine. Let that prayer be mine. And this is it. God, I, I, I confess to you, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm guilty in and of myself. 
But you and your perfect love for me died on the sent your son Jesus to die on the cross that all of my sin could be paid for. And then he died and he rose again, just like you promised he would. His death paid for my guilt in entirety and his resurrection now allows me to have a brand new life. And so I say yes to Jesus as my Savior, but also yes to Jesus as my Lord. Have me now, I pray. Unprogram what has been misprogrammed. Uncompute what has been miscomputed. Remove the information that's lies and replace it with your truth now. That I would see everything through the truth that you are. Unchanging and perfect. As I surrender to you now in Jesus, in your name. Amen.